0: All right. Well, I have the very special privilege this morning of introducing you to Mr. Ryan Denton. Uh, Ryan is a uh, a friend of ours. He's known Pastor Mark for a while now, and he's going to be bringing us the word this morning, which I'm really excited about. Ryan is the director of Christ in the Wild Ministries, uh, which is a ministry um, with a focus on evangelism and preaching, the gospel to those outside of the church that need to hear it. So you'll find Ryan preaching on street corners and abortion clinics and college campuses and other places all over Texas and New Mexico other states as well I believe. Um and uh, we have the great privilege as a church um, to get to partner with him in ministry he ryan is is now one of the missionaries that we will be supporting moving forward as a church and uh, one of the things that I, I love and appreciate about ryan is his his passion and zeal to preach the gospel in a theologically sound way and to evangelize in a way that is christ honoring and so you know ryan's not out there just trying to manipulate people um, to, to pray a prayer and jump through certain hoops, but he's truly allowing the Holy Spirit to work through him and his ministry, understanding that it's the Holy Spirit that saves and regenerates us, uh, and so he is just a faithful witness to Christ out in the wild, and so um, we are just really, really thankful and excited to have him this morning. Ryan, if you would come on up here and join me. And then if the rest of you, if you guys would stand for the reading of God's word. And Ryan will be bringing us a word from Psalm 2 this morning. So let me read this to you. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a blue Bible in the seat pocket in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible, please take that home with you. We want everyone to have the word of God in their home. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Well, you uh, may be seated. And I want to also say that Mark's been helping us. We have a church plant in Clovis, New Mexico, and Mark's been going down there occasionally on Sunday afternoons at 3 p.m. to help us out. And so that's been a really huge blessing for us because for a long time I was in College Station and the church plant was eight hours away. So Mark certainly helped us to uh, to, to keep the ball rolling, so to speak, and the church is is, is doing great. In fact, we're going, after, um, going back to Clovis after, after this. So Please continue praying for that church plant. And um, I met Mark at the abortion clinic, actually doing ministry. And, and one thing led to the other, and we found out we were very like-minded. And I was certainly appreciative of the fact that he was out there preaching Christ and and uh, and pleading for for uh, for babies to be saved. So that was that was neat to see a pastor out there. So Mark's been a dear friend of mine, and and um, you're certainly blessed, as I'm sure you know, to have him as a pastor and David as well. So let's go ahead and and pray, and we'll start. Working through Psalm 2 this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you today. We are thankful for Christ. We're thankful that today we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We thank you that every Lord's Day is an opportunity to to remember this and worship you and to gather with the saints. And Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the promises of Scripture. We thank you for Christ. Who appears not just in the New Testament, but here in Psalm 2. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us much grace today. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit. I pray for your, your help today as we open up your word. I pray that you would give us grace to step away from any distractions in our minds and our hearts. That you would give us grace to see Christ and behold him in all of his truth and all of his glory and all of his beauty. We thank you, Father, that Christ Is not just the Son of God, but He's God the Son. And we can praise Him today for that. And we can praise you for the work that you're doing through your people today. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who's not your people, that you would save them, that you would open their eyes today, and that you would that you would get all the glory today. We thank you for doing all things well. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 2, so if you've ever read through the Psalms, especially, let's say, the first two Psalms, uh, there's an intentionality as far as why they put Psalm 1 and 2 in the beginning. And so the Psalms are not organized uh, chronologically as far as time goes. So what you have here is a very deliberate effort. Of course, the Psalms was the songbook of the church for a long time, and so, and, and in a sense, it still is today, in a sense. Um... But Psalm 1 and 2 are there for a reason. So if you remember Psalm 1, Psalm 1 talks about the contrast between the man who who walks in the ways of the Lord, how blessed is that man, in contrast to those who don't walk in the way of the Lord. And Psalm 2 is kind of a, um, it flows out of that first Psalm, and especially what it looks like for people who don't honor the Lord, and how God responds to that, and I find this psalm to be a very encouraging psalm, a very comforting psalm in the sense of if you look around in our world today, I don't have to tell you very much to know that this is... Becoming increasingly a hostile place for Christians, and it's it's becoming increasingly even if you're not a Christian, it's just you know there's crime on every street, there's poverty, there's chaos in the schools, outside the schools, so wherever you go, and it's not just um, you know I lived in a long time in Albuquerque, and Albuquerque's a city that you drive through and keep driving through and make sure the windows are up, and you don't want you know you're just careful, right? Um, well, really, if you look around, I mean every every Place every town, every city is the same way today. And it's becoming increasingly worse. Now, I'm not a, uh, a pessimist as far as I don't believe things will continue to get worse and worse and worse. And in the end, I believe that Christ is seated on the throne today. And there's a purpose behind all of this. And as we look around the world today, there's actually revivals, uh, spiritual revival going on across the world today. In fact, more Christians are in places outside of the West than they are in the West. So in other words, in the East, in China, in Russia, in India, in Africa, they're they're revival cultures right now. The Spirit of God is at work over there. We don't see it as much over here in the West. However, that doesn't mean God has just kind of given us over as far as His people go. Now, He might have given this country over, but He hasn't given His people over. And it's not to say there's no purpose behind this. So Psalm 2, here's another beautiful thing about this. It was written... Thousands of years ago. And what we have here is when you start reading this, you're thinking, okay, the same thing is happening today, and the same thing happened all the way back in the Tower of Babel, and the same thing happened whenever, in a sense, um, all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve when they rebel against God. And so let's look at the first three verses here. And you notice, first of all, there's there's four stanzas, okay? There's four stanzas to this, and each each stanza has a different speaker here. So verse 1 through 3, let's read this. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. Notice he says a vain thing, something that's that's futile, something that's not going to work. But they're scheming together. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Look at the language here. Why are the nations in an uproar? So first of all, they're in an uproar. Secondly, the peoples are devising a vain thing. So they're in an uproar. They're devising a vain thing. Verse two says they're taking their stand and they're taking counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, right? So again, you work through there, you said, okay, they're in an uproar, they're devising a vain thing, they're taking their stand together, they're taking counsel together. They are adamant about overthrowing the Lord. They are determined. This is something that they are gnashing their teeth about. They are, they are fixated, they're obsessed on overthrowing The Lord and and the Lord's anointed. And, of course, you look around today and you're thinking, huh, that kind of seems like a lot of times what you're seeing today. In fact, I would say this even. So you see this is the kings and the rulers. So these are the leaders. These are the people at the top. And, of course, we know, you know, politicians are corrupt and you can't. It's hard to trust anybody. Judges are corrupt these days. So it's hard to know, right? But here's the thing. This is assuming that if the top is like this, the people under them are also going to be like this because the people are usually their minions, So you're talking about a climate that is just all out against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, the reason that's important is because, first of all, it doesn't start out as society against God. It starts out individually. So if you think about what they're doing, look at verse 3. This is what they're saying. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That is exactly the problem that well started with Eve, I guess, that Adam and Eve had in the garden about God. That's the way that the devil came and tempted Eve. Remember he says, "Well, I mean, Eve, you I know you're saying that God told you that you you know you can eat all the fruit except the one, but you're telling me you're telling me you can't eat from any of the trees." And she's like, "Well, no, God didn't say that." And then he starts working on her and the Bible says that she begins to see that the food was good to eat, it was a, it was a delight to the eyes, and it would make her wise. Now, the reason God put that tree in the garden was to demonstrate that he has authority over the human beings. Because remember, the human beings, God put an authority to have dominion over the earth, to run the earth. But he wanted to establish the fact that he has authority over the human beings. So he's still in control. He's still in charge. There was nothing magical about the tree. It was an establishment of God's authority over human beings, that God is the one who runs the show. This universe, the laws that we have, our conscience, morality, those things are not dictated by culture, by our society, or by ourselves. They're dictated by God ultimately. That's what he was doing. He was establishing his sovereign rights over the universe and specifically over human beings. But then the devil comes in and starts working on Eve. And let's not make Eve the victim here, right, or Adam the victim here. They went along with it. They sinned against God. What are they trying to do? In a sense, they are trying to tear the fetters of God apart and cast their cords from them. That's what they're doing. That's what Cain does when he murders Abel. That's what the people in the days of Noah are doing whenever God looks at the imagination of man's heart and he sees that they're only evil continuously. And then you fast forward to the Tower of Babel and then you fast forward to the days of Abraham when he's walking through everywhere. He's just walking and all everywhere he's going, he's encountering corruption. In fact, in his own heart, he goes to Egypt and he sells his wife out, right? He says, this is my wife protecting myself. And for the, for I mean, the, the entire history of humanity is this right here. Is this right here? All you have to do is read scripture. All you have to do is read the any kind of historical account of any season, any period in, in in the history of humanity, and you're going to find that there's corruption, there's evil, there's there's immorality, there's people who are saying, "I want to tear God's fetters apart and cast His cords away from me." Why? Because by nature we are sinful. And we want what's called autonomy over God, self-rule. We want to dictate what's right and what's wrong. We want, to, we want to live however we want to live. By nature, that's how we are. The Bible says that in sin, my mother conceived me. The Bible says in Romans 3, there are none who do good, no, not one. There's no one who's righteous. Jeremiah seventeen nine says our heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately wicked. It's deceitful we have a deceitful heart so our heart lies to us it says no we're not really that bad you know we're not we're not we're not adolf hitler at least right we're not we're not like the people you see on television they're in jail or they're you know causing trouble and we're not like them at least we're better than that but that's because god restrains us from being as bad and as evil as adolf hitler and other people our nature is evil but when you have it here, now by God's grace, if you're in Christ today, right, you have a new nature. That's the beauty of it. You have a new mind. You have a new heart. So your intention, your your, your motive for life is no longer in this direction. But we are still living in a society and in a culture surrounded by people whose motive is to overthrow the Lord and is anointed. So you're like, well, what do we do, right? And, and the reason I think this is an important psalm is because a lot of times in our culture it's very popular... To assume that Christ is is, is impotent and weak and he he's helpless. And he can't do anything about this evil that's going on, and he's wringing his hands and he's pulling his hair out. You know, he's crying, he's weeping, he's saying, I can't believe it so, but what what do we do? But that's not Christ. Look at look at the second stanza in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. So they're seeing all you know, I'm talking of the Lord, the Father the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, they're looking, they're in heaven, and they're looking at all the scheming, and they're looking at all the attempts to overthrow God and overthrow His anointed and all the, all the attempts to persecute the church. You know, there's more persecution against Christians around the world today, supposedly, than there has been in the history of the church combined. Now, maybe not in America, although it's getting worse. But around the world today, there are Christians being tortured, as I'm preaching Right now, because they're Christians, you've probably heard stories, right? I mean, there's a lot of stories in other parts of the world. People in certain camps, and in China, and you know, who knows what they're doing to people in North Korea, India, all these places, right? They're dying for the faith. But it doesn't mean that God is somehow not in control. What's going on here is in verse four. Notice what he does. So Christ is, or or the Father here, God that He's seated in the heavens. Now, if you turn to Isaiah six. Turn to Isaiah 6 real fast, and look at what happens here. This is Isaiah, and he sees a vision of the Lord. In Isaiah 6, verse 1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He's sitting. You know what that tells us? He's composed. He's not riled up. He's not shaken. He's not concerned. He's not pulling his hair out. He's seated on a throne. He's level headed. It's okay. He's in control. He's sovereign. He knows what's going on. Not only does he know what's going on, but he uses what's going on for his glory, whatever evil it is. Remember whenever Joseph's brother sold him into Egypt, and the brothers they find out it's Joseph, the brother, that's now number two man in, in, in all of Egypt, and they're freaking out. They're thinking, Oh man, we're in trouble now. We sold him out. And what does Joseph say? No, you what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is sovereign. He's sitting in the heavens, and he's laughing at all the evil, all the schemes. Now, I'm not not implying that he doesn't care, especially for his people, right? He knows how many hairs are on your head if you're in Christ today. He cares for you. You are his, his father, excuse me, you are his son, and he is your father, right? There's a relationship there. He cares for you. But it's to say he's not concerned. It's to say whatever is going on in the world, he's up there, and he's saying this is... It's going to turn out for my good. And we're going to see this you know, as far as why this is in a minute. But he's seated in the heavens. He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So now we see the Lord's response, right? He laughs. He scoffs. And then notice he doesn't not respond. He's not apathetic. He actually responds to this. There's the beauty of it for Christians. We're going through trials and sufferings and persecutions. And does God care? Does it, where is he? You know, how many times in our lives when things happen to us, we wonder, does God really care? Why does God let this happen? Why this? Why that? We try, to, we try to play God. We try to, in our minds, we say, well, if it was me, I would have done it this way. If I was God, this is what would have happened, not this. If I was God, this person would have got cancer and not that person. If I was God, this person would have had the car wreck and not this person, right? We do that. We forget, though. We forget who's God and who's not. And so here God is responding to this attempt to overthrow him. In verse 5, we see that he responds here. He says, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Now I want to stop here and talk about a few things. Because first of all, we we just... And I'm speaking of the culture, the Christian culture. we, We usually tend to shy away from this idea that God is angry with the wicked every day. Or that God... My friends, that God hates, right? Have y'all ever read that in Scripture? You read the you read the fact that God hates people. And you're thinking, no, that's not true, right? God doesn't hate anybody. How can God hate anybody? God is love. He is love. First John tells us God is love. But how can He hate? And you're like, He doesn't hate anybody. Well, turn to Psalm five, verse five. Turn to Psalm five, verse five, and let's read this. It says this, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Your translation might say you hate all evildoers, right? You hate all evildoers. Now, if you turn to Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Now, we have to look at this, right? We know that God is love, But here we have a response from God that says God actually has this kind of indignation, this 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 fury. And we're thinking, wait a minute, that's a contradiction. That's not a contradiction. You and I do the same thing. See, if you really love something, to the extent that you love something, you're going to be upset and even angry when that thing that you love is messed with. You love your wife. Are you not angry, upset? When someone messes with your wife, your children, whatever it is, some people they make, I'm not going to say an idol out of a motorcycle or car in the sense of if someone scratches your motorcycle or car car and you get upset, that's idolatry. But think about it, right? Hey, I I like my car. (laughs) I don't make an idol of my car. I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that I can go from point A to point B or whatever, but if someone keys my car, I'm going to be upset about it. If someone keys your car, I'm gonna be upset about it. If someone steals some stranger's purse, I'm upset about it. Why? Because I love humans. I love my neighbor. So I'm upset when that's defiled, whenever that's, whenever that's messed with. That's the kind of anger. When we talk about God's anger or His wrath, we say, well, what does God love? In order for, what does it mean that God is love? It means that God loves, yes, His holiness. He loves holiness. He loves goodness. He loves righteousness. That's, a, that's what a good God loves. A good God does not love evil. A righteous, good, holy God cannot stand evil. That's why hell exists. At Texas Tech the other day, somebody says, well, if God is love, how, why does he throw anybody to hell? He does so because he's love. A loving God hates evil. A loving God is a good God. That means He's a good judge. We can't bribe Him. We can't buy Him off. That's the beauty of Christianity, right? When us who saves ourselves, it was Christ taking on flesh who goes to the cross and He's crushed in our place. So that we as His people will never have to be crushed. That's, that's how we're reconciled to God. It's not because of anything we did. That's what's wrong with all the false religions in the world. They say, I- I'm going to heaven because I'm good enough, I'm righteous enough, I've paid my debts, I've done this, I've done that. But they forget that if God is a good God, then He has to punish evil. He has to punish sin. And He does so, He does so through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So here we have God and He responds to this. That's the beauty here. He's not just saying, hey, you guys are on your own. <laughs> I'm not getting involved in that. Remember the martyrs in Revelation, when they're killed, they're under the throne of God, and they're saying, how long, O Lord, until you, until your vengeance shown? How long until you repent the evil? There's a day coming when God will do that. But look what God says here. But as for me, here's how God responds. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is called a messianic, messianic psalm. It's talking about Christ. My king upon Zion. I have established My son, my king upon Zion. And over here, look at verse 12. You see a specific reference to the son. Do homage to the son. see that? Verse 12. Or kiss the son, you might have. So that's God's response. What's he do to all the evil? What's his response? He installs his king as Christ, king of kings and lord of lords over all things, right? over. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. In fact, I want to show you this. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. This is Christ speaking here. The speaker shifts here, it changes. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Okay, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now wait a minute. Where was Christ born? Bethlehem, right? Where did he reside? Where did he hang out? A lot of times he was in Jerusalem. Where where was he crucified? Jerusalem. Well, that's not the ends of the earth. That's one place. What do you mean you're the king? You know, how, how in the world can you be the king to the very ends of the earth? How can you possess all the nations to the very ends of the earth? You died in Jerusalem. You lived in Israel. That's just a little corner of the world. That's not, I mean, what do you, what do you mean the ends of the earth, right? Well, what do we have in the gospel? In fact, let me step back. What do we have today, right now, in Lubbock, Texas? Okay, Christ did not speak our language. He didn't speak in English. Christ was not an American. Christ was not, he was not a white man. There's a surprise, right? I know it's not. A lot of times people assume, hey, Christianity is not a white man's Western religion. It's not. It started in the Middle East, and here we are today, right? The gospel has spread to the West, and now today the gospel is spreading to the East. It's spreading to Africa. It's spreading to India. It's spreading to Russia. And as that happens, Christ is taking these nations. He's taking people. He's taking lands. Look what happens. I want to show you this in this way, okay? If you turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, remember there's a promise made to Abraham in the Old Testament. God comes to Abraham, and he tells Abraham... In your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Y'all remember that? Remember he takes Abraham outside and says, Abraham, look at all the stars in the sky, right? See how many stars are in the sky, Abraham? That's how many descendants you're gonna have. That's how many, that's how many children you're gonna have. There's a lot of stars, a lot of people. You know what that means? You know what that's a reference to? That's a reference to the people who come into Christianity through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. What I mean by that is this. First of all, let's let Paul tell us, okay? Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So if you're wondering, how were how people in the Old Testament saved? They were saved by faith. They had faith in the Messiah to come. Verse 7, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Wait a minute. What if you're not a, what if you're not a physical ethnic descendant of Abraham? Are you still a son of Abraham? Look at this. Verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the who? The Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you. How is that possible? Because Abraham is the father of the faith. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're whatever, if you have faith in Christ, you are a son of Abraham. That's what the Bible teaches. So we go back to this passage in Psalm 2, and we're asking, okay, well, how is God going to bless the nations through the gospel? He says this in another place. Christ says this in Matthew 28. The last thing that Christ tells his disciples, Matthew 28, before he's ascended, this is verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's a glorious statement, right? Every blade of grass, every bumblebee, every human being, every nation, every star in the sky, every angel, Christ has authority over everybody. And guess what? My friends, this is not for Whenever Christ comes back. He's saying this today. He said this thousands of years ago. By virtue of what his work on the cross accomplished, Satan has been bound. Christ is sovereign. He has authority in heaven and on earth. And he says, what does he say? In light of the fact that I have authority over all the nations, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. They're in Jerusalem. They've never been outside of Israel in their life, probably any of them. But when Christ gives them this commission, they automatically know. Now, for for a while, they're stuck in Jerusalem until Pentecost comes and persecution comes. But then they go, out; they start taking the gospel everywhere. Why? Because that's how the nations are going to be blessed. That's how disciples across the world are going to be brought in. This is not in a, a religion that's just for a certain nation or a certain group of people. This is for everybody who comes to faith in Christ. From every nation, every tribe, every tongue, people are being brought into the faith, and everywhere the gospel goes, that society, this is a, this is like a side advantage. That society flourishes. I remember I was doing um, real, I real I like studying I guess um my ancestry and you know where where my my lineage comes from and things like that. And so if you go back to like the two hundreds or three hundreds. No, they're somewhere up in the northern part of Europe. And guess what, my friends? They're evil people. My ancestors are eating each other. They're incestuous. They're worshiping things of wood. They're going around pillaging people. They paint their faces. They're evil. There's no justice. There's no, there's no love for their neighbors. There's no desire to to know the one true God, right? Well, what happens? Well, in God's grace, the gospel goes there and converts people, and it has an impact. It influences things. So now all of a sudden that culture becomes a culture that says, hey, we're to love our neighbors as ourself. That's why, we're, you know, wherever missionaries go in the world, you know what the first thing they usually do is? They establish schools and universities. Why? So that you can learn how to read the gospel. So you can learn how to read the scripture. So now you're beginning to learn things. You know what else they were doing? They were building hospitals. Why? Because I love my neighbor. I want my neighbor to be taken care of. But wait a minute. you, You don't know your neighbor. I know, but they're still made in God's image. They're still my neighbor. It affects things. It influences things. It goes from being barbaric to somewhat civilized. Goes from being everyone after their, their, their thro- after each other's throats, an eye for an eye, after each other, killing each other, to all of a sudden we're like, hey, we should, you know, we're all made in God's image. What are we doing now? We're trying to tell people about Christ. Tell people about the gospel. So it changes cultures. And if you look around our, our world today, it's fascinating because places like Africa, where the gospel goes, places India, in certain parts of India, they have far more common sense than we do in America because they're influenced by the gospel. They're looking around and they're saying, what are you talking about, homosexual marriage? We're not going to do that. That's insane. Why? Because it's against God's law. It's unnatural. That's what the Bible says. It, by the way, it doesn't work as far as the society goes. It's a breakdown of society, and they see that. They're using the gospel to see that. So in other words, there's, there's ramifications that are secondary The primary thing is God is being glorified across the world. People are being saved. God's church is being built up. But there's there's consequences, good consequences, right? So the nations are being discipled. And then lastly, he says, um, Christ in verse 20 says, Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That includes today. And these guys were going out. Every single one of them except the, the apostle John was killed for being a Christian. So in the midst of that, Christ is reminding them, hey, I am with you always, even when you're being persecuted, even when you're being killed. It's okay. I'm with you. This is not our home. This is No one has promised this to be paradise, right? This, this place is supposed to be our wilderness when we're on our way to the promised land. But Christ is with us just like he was with the people of Israel in the desert, leading them pillar of cloud and, and a, and a f- pillar of fire by night. Christ is leading us. He's with us. So that's how God is going. What does he say back in Psalm 2? He says, I will give the nations as your inheritance. And the very end of the earth is your possession. The very ends of the earth. Every last corner of this earth is going to be gospelized. And Christ is claiming these nations. And he's going to. Verse 9 says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. Now this is meek and mild, Christ, right? This is the Lamb. But you say, hey, you're going to break them with a rod of iron. This is the rod of judgment, the rod of discipline. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is discipline. This is judgment. And we see this in various ways throughout the, throughout the world today. You know, as a country or a nation, as they, as they, um, throw off these fetters of the gospel, what happens? Chaos, confusion, evil. Pillaging, murder—you go back to incest and pedophilia. Everything else happens. It floods in. Why? Because the gospel was the restraining element there, but now it's gone. What? What happens? Demons, doctrines of demons, bad theology—everything comes in. That's what we're seeing here. So that's God's judgment. So again, we're saying, well, wait a minute. God doesn't judge. Yeah, of course He does. Right? He's a good judge. It's not a contradiction. It's right here in scripture verse 10 says, and here's the warning, here's the last stanza, okay? And it switches again. It switches back to the speaker. This is more like a neutral speaker and he's telling everyone, listen. How should we respond to this in light of the fact that God is sovereign and you can't overthrow him. You can't overthrow him. It doesn't matter how powerful you are, it doesn't matter how much how much money you have, it doesn't matter what you know, the the influence of a politician, or whatever nation, you cannot overthrow God. You cannot overthrow, you cannot thwart his purposes. So in response to that, verse 10, very kindly, by the way, I mean, this is a nice, gracious God actually say, hey, I'm going to tell you what to do about this. I'm not just going to take you out and cast you into hell. I'm going to tell you what to do. There's a response here. Whether you're a politician or an individual or anyone, whoever you are trying to overthrow the things of God and God himself, he says, now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Be wise. Wake up. Open your eyes. Think about what you're doing. Think about how insane this is, trying to overthrow the one who made all things, the creator of the universe. You can't you can't overthrow you can't win this war. And perhaps you're saying, I'm not trying to overthrow God. I'm just living as though God doesn't exist. I'm just doing my own thing. I don't care one way or the other. But Christ says you're either for Him or against Him. When it comes to God, there's no such thing as being neutral. There's no such thing as being objective or even agnostic and saying, well, I I haven't quite really figured things out. Because in Romans 1, it says, oh, yes, you have. By virtue of the fact that you've been made by God in His image and you live in His creation, you know... That the one true God exists, but in unrighteousness, you suppress it. You hold it down, it says in Romans 1. Because what can be known about God is plain to every single person, Romans 1 tells us. Obvious. But people suppress it. So here it's saying, listen, wake up. What, What do you think? You can't win this. People have been trying to overthrow God from day one, and here we are still preaching his word. And not only preaching His Word here, but it's being preached around the world more in more places than it ever has been. The last 2,000 years. You can't overthrow God. You're not going to win this. And verse 11 says, worship the Lord with reverence. I love that part. With reverence, worship the Lord. In fact, I mean, think of that, what it's saying. What's, What's our response? Worship the Lord. Don't just do lip service. Don't just, you know, it's not just... It's not just coming to church, but it's truly, what is your heart? What state is your heart in? What's your motive for being here? What are you, what's your life like outside of church? You're not saved by your fruit. But it's to say if you've truly been born again, then your life is going to demonstrate that. And partly what that means is that you'll be a person of worship. Not just in church. But your whole life will be an act of worship to God. In your work, you'll say, God, I want to work at this job not to get anything primarily, not to please somebody. I want to please God at work because God sees me. There's another thing, by the way, work ethic. Where the gospel goes, you see good work ethic. Why? Because people are working unto the Lord. I don't care if it's a Chick-fil-A. I don't care if you're sweeping a street, a plumber. My, my my son, you know, I keep thinking my son's gonna be a preacher, I say he's two years old, I say what are you gonna do when you grow up? He says he's gonna drive trucks. That's what he wants to do, drive trucks. You can do that to the glory of God. Absolutely. Your entire life is an act of worship now, and then it says this, rejoice with trembling. You see the sincerity of that? It's not just rejoicing. You know, our culture, we're all, we rejoice about everything. You know, my team won the football game. It's, it's so-and-so's birthday today. I, I graduated from this. I got a job over here. I'm always rejoicing. But am I rejoicing over God, primarily? And not only am I rejoicing, look what it's, I, I, with trembling. Isn't that nice? You know, there's an element of, of, of awe, and even fear when it comes to the Christian's response of who God is. Because we know that God's a holy God. We're standing in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And wherever you look in Scripture, and you try it, wherever you look in Scripture, people come before God reverently and trembling. Even when angels appear to people, they fall on their faces. Like John actually starts worshiping an angel because he's so overtaken and overwhelmed by this angel's glory. And the angel has to say, no, John, don't worship me. I'm a creature like you are. Don't worship me. Worship God. But if he's overtaken by an angel's presence, how much more by God? And to a certain extent, every Christian, everyone who's been born again, will be able to taste a little bit of that, at least. And then last verse he says do homage to the sun." the better translation there is kiss the sun," because in the old days what would happen is when a king went out and waged war against another king the losing king would be required to come and kiss the feet of the of the victorious king and that was to show his submission that he's been conquered that he's been he's been taken he's been he's been undone he's been overcome that's what that references too. Here's God telling us: Kiss the Son, do homage to the Son, kiss His feet, acknowledge that He and you're not, acknowledge that He's the Lord and you're not, acknowledge that this is His universe and you've been subdued, you've been overtaken, and you're undone. And by God's grace, you come to Him and, like the uh, the the tax collector, you say, "Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinful man." Like Peter, whenever he realizes Christ is the Christ, he says, "Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man." I don't deserve this. It's by grace that we've been saved, right? Not not by our works, not by anything we've done, lest we would vote. It's by faith, by God's grace. But again, it ends with this, for his wrath may soon be kindled. If you think about how many people are dying around the world today, and I don't mean to be sensational, but this is reality. I just preached a funeral for my cousin last week. He was 54, died of a heart attack, just like that killed him, right? And you're like, wow i mean that could be anybody and we know that we know death is all around us we're always aware of that but the reality is this you know despite knowing the fact that we are all prone to die at any single moment of our life an asteroid could come and just demolish us right now again not to be sensational that's a fact though but in light of that does death change the way we live The fact that I know I'm going to die, even, you know, even if everybody lives to be the average age, 80 years old or whatever, in 100 years, 80 years old, or in 80 years, well, every person in here, we're going to be dead. So why would we live for the 80 years when we have eternity in front of us? See, that's what it's saying. Take warning, wake up, show discernment. But it says God's wrath may soon be kindled. And if you're apart from Christ today, let me, let me read this out of John chapter 3. If you're outside of Christ today, this is what the Scriptures show us. In verse 36 it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey or believe the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is the same passage that John 3.16 is in. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's a fact. He did. But there's a, there, there's a condition there that whosoever believes in him Will not perish. Meaning what? Everyone who doesn't believe in them, in him, they will perish. And it says right here, the wrath of God abides on every person not in Christ today. In Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about how we as Christians used to be children of wrath, even as the rest. What does that tell us? That those who are outside of Christ today are under the wrath of God. Why? Because he's a good God. He's a good judge. He judges rightly. But he's also loved us so much as people. And that's the fact too, right? God so loved the world. He went to the cross and he took on the wrath that we're talking about. The reason God's people will never suffer the wrath of God is because Christ suffered the wrath of God in, his, in, in your place. and In my place if you're in Christ. That's why. Is that not glorious? It's the only way we can be right with God because God Himself did something, and then it ends with this though: "How blessed are all who take refuge in Him." That's how this whole thing ends. It ends with hope. It ends with encouragement. It's, it ends not, you know, in, in a sense. it Psalm. I mean, could, could you imagine if the Psalm ended over here where it's talking about God's going to break them with the rod of iron, God's going to shatter them like earthenware? That's the end of the Psalm. You're like, all right, man, that's He's still good. But here's the God of grace who's coming, and he's saying, if you're in Christ, if you take refuge in Christ, you're blessed. Remember the, how I told you in Psalm 1 is about the blessed man versus the wicked man? Psalm 2 is doing the same thing. If you're in Christ, you're blessed. In the early church, they used to look at... Noah's Ark as a reference to taking refuge, the Christian taking refuge. Because, of course, in, in the times of Noah, Noah and his family, they believe God. They enter into the ark. The storms of God's wrath break out against everyone else. But they are protected because they are in the ark of God. They're protected from the storm of God's wrath. And the early church looked at that and they said, that is what we, that is like us in Christ. We are We are in the ark of God. The refuge, we've taken refuge in the things that God, God has done. So I hope this is an encouragement to show us, listen, Christ is sovereign today. Christ is ruling today. Christ is very much aware of what's going on, whether it's your life, of course, but as a country, in the world, He's very much aware. He's not throwing up His hands and saying, you're on your own. But it is to say, if you're not in Christ today, you know, you're going <laughs> to... I mean, it's, it's, now that you've heard this, if you're not in Christ today, the judgment, if you were to die in your sin, will be greater now that you've heard some of these things about Christ than it would have been if you had never heard this. There's a responsibility when you hear the Word of God to respond to it in, the, in, in a way that pleases the Lord. And so God is a gracious God for warning us about these things, but also He's very gracious for, for showing His people that He's in control. We don't have to worry Fear not, little flock, is what he tells us, right? Fear not, little flock. He's got it. Keep your eyes on Christ. Work to the glory of God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Be in the Word. God's going to take care of things. And let's go out and glorify God in everything we do. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We, We thank you that we do have the hope of the gospel. Thank you that we don't... By your grace, Lord, you don't give your people what we deserve. We thank you that you've you've called us out, that you've given us new eyes and a new mind and a new heart, so that the things that used to be foolish are now are now true wisdom and true food and true meat. Lord, I pray for your people here, I pray for I pray for Brother Mark. I pray that you would help him with his sickness, that you would bless him, restore him to health. I pray that you'd bless your people here, encourage them, help them this week, Father. Give them grace, strengthen them. Lord, help all of us not to flinch in the face of these trials that are in our lives, but to know that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and this life is just a vapor. Lord, I pray that you'd be with those who are not your people here, that you would have mercy on them, that you would open their eyes Lord, show them the severity of this, how serious this is, how how quick life is, that you're a good God and greatly to be praised. So, Lord, we do that today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. What a great word. Um, I'm thankful. Ryan, to you for being here with us this morning and uh truly looking forward to the future and getting to partner together in ministry um, and uh allow to, to share in the work that the Lord is doing and will continue to do through your ministry. So thank you again for being here. If you guys would stand with me, and if you would place your hands in a receiving position, I'm going to read the benediction over you from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. In the name of the Father, and the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.